Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Dude Merkel. And I'm Josh Randalls. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hi, everyone. This is Dan Godby, medical editor of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Thank you again for joining us for the fall 2020 edition of the JSON podcast, where we review and summarize a few select articles from our journal. While we at the JSON are always interested in hearing from our readership, particularly the medics, we have just implemented a mentoring program specifically to help medics get through the publishing process. Select editors are dedicated to focus on articles submitted by medics and provide assistance to them. Now, again, and as always, Here's Josh and Alex with the podcast. And Josh, welcome back to times of shenanigans and hijinks. How are you these days, my friend? Oh, I'm super good, man. At least in uh, North Carolina, the only um, natural disasters that we're dealing with come by like every month or so, as opposed to yours, which just burn your entire state down. Hey, man, that's, uh, that's a little close to home. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, any interesting cases in your shop these days? Um, nothing super crazy. I've been working acute care surgery for the past month or so. It's been interesting, but it's just a lot of small bowel obstructions, appies, and coles. What about you? You know, we, we were talking before. I had a great one, and it brought in so many different learning lessons. But here in California, where there is some questionable decision-making by uh, all levels of government and leadership, uh, one of the things that we're dealing with now is the legalization of marijuana, which everybody knows well. And, you know, I've heard a lot of folks saying that marijuana is okay to legalize because it's safe and doesn't have any health issues. And I can tell you from a recent patient that that is not true. So, um, we actually had a, a patient that came into our trauma service who ate a large amount of unknown strength edible marijuana goodies and got so high that he went in and sat on the toilet and passed out and didn't wake up till the next morning. And at that point, he was actually unable to stand uh, so called the ambulance. Ambulance came and brought him in. And it turns out that sitting on the rim of a toilet blocking the blood flow to both of your legs all night is not a good thing. So it was it was actually a really interesting diagnosis because we were really toying along with the trauma surgeons and the orthopedic surgeons if this was a crush injury or a compartment syndrome. And it was a really good thought process to, to think about because the treatments are different. Uh, but the end result is when we opened up all of his compartments, he had completely devitalized musculature of both legs from where the toilet seat hits, which is above the knee, all the way down. So he is in the queue for bilateral uh, above knee amputation due to the devil's weed. <laughs> so, I mean, is this going to be added to the, the poisoning sheet? Like, you know, don't take marijuana because, you know, uncontrolled vomiting and... It makes AA, your legs fall like... off. Yeah, like, I mean, it's insane. It's marijuana, or it's uh, California. I mean, you know, there's there's all sorts of crazy stuff that goes on here, man. But uh, more importantly, let's talk science. What have we got in store this edition? Hey, this is Josh. 
We just want you to know that we did notice after we finished recording that Alex mistakenly calls this a rotary wing infill versus the fixed wing infill that it was. Pardon our mistake. So we got some feedback from you guys, and you'd like us to talk more about some of the case studies that are in the JSON, which I think is a good idea considering that they are plentiful and important lessons can be learned with the understanding that these are one-offs and not the plural of anecdote isn't data. Um, so <laughs> we should take a look at these and, and say, that's interesting, but we need to also think about what sort of research this may drive in the future. So Alex, what have you got for us this edition? We've got a doozy here. So this month, we've got management of critically injured burn patients during an open ocean pararescue mission by Brian Stack, Eric DeSusi, Chris Peterson, Jed Smith, Michael Hartman, and of course, Doc Stephen Rush, because he is the man when it comes to PJ medicine. I think by now we've probably all heard about the Tamar mission that the New York National Guard PJs performed, and it, it's just an incredible mission. And for those who don't have much of a background, I would redirect you over to the PJ Med podcast with Doc Rush, episode number 94 through 97. That was back in August of 2017. But in summary, in April of 2017, the U.S. Coast Guard was notified by Portuguese Rescue Coordination Center of a vehicle in distress. And as we in some of the civilian search and rescue know, you really try and take care of search and rescue at the lowest level possible. And if it becomes beyond your capability, you, you reach up to higher. And that's essentially how it got from the Portuguese government over to uh, probably, my guess would be like a State Department request over to US assets and then was tasked out to the Swiss Army Knife of Rescue, which is the Air Force Pararescue. And so this goes through a really nice analysis of their mission. This starts with a breakdown of their pre-alert through their mission planning, and then does a really nice job of organizing the mission along the lines that rescue assets use, which is infill, patient access, patient care, patient stabilization, and exfil. In summary, the Jays were notified of this mission, ended up grabbing what equipment they had, not necessarily what they needed, but what they had available to them for this no-notice mission. Then did a rotor wing over water infill, followed by a jump mission into water, then getting their gear at about midnight out of their bundles, putting their boats together, going over water to the vessel, then getting up onto the vessel, and then going down in accessing their two surviving patients from their initial count of four, providing really fantastic extended critical care for a prolonged period of time with a rotating group of medical care teams, uh, then packaging the patient, doing a rotor wing exfil off to a adjacent island, and then doing a tail-to-tail and I was going to go through with some of the lessons learned that I saw in this manuscript. However, these guys then go on to actually have a whole section in which they talk about their mission debrief as well as their individual lessons learned. And the couple small points that I would take away from this is that they talk about how this is a, a really incredible prolonged field care mission. However, of the 37 hours, really only 20 hours, was spent taking care of patients with um, hands-on contact. To me, that's not the takeaway from this mission. It's that these guys are, and hopefully gals in the future, 
they are the Swiss Army knife of medical care. I mean, they did a no-notice open ocean night jump uh, with their equipment and then took care of a patient and then did a hoist exfil after winding these guys down some really tight ladder wells. I mean, these guys are just incredible. And, and they even say that their skills and training for all of these different technical specialties come sometimes at the expense of their medical expertise. But I can't say that I'm surprised by that. And, and they still just do an outstanding job. The couple of small points that I would take from this is um, they said they definitely didn't have enough medications. And one of the things I've heard from the guys over at the PFC working group before is that your gear loadout should at a minimum be enough for 200 kilo guys for 72 hours. And I'm not sure if they did that or not, but I, I really like that as a mindset. And then, you know, the other thing reading through this mission is they said when they eventually had to do a definitive airway on one of the patients. They did it without paralytics on their third attempt. And so I actually reached out to one of the authors and, and asked if that was because they were concerned about burn patient with hyperkalemia. Um, and so, you know, that really for a lot of us should be paused that perhaps in an after action review, we would consider if there is a non-depolarizing paralytic agent that may be better. Perhaps not, but really one of those things to think about because these guys are, again, the Swiss Army knife, and I like to have all my equipment be a Swiss Army equipment that can be used really across anything. And for this edition, we have the privilege of yet another outstanding guest medic reviewer. We've got Rico Pesci, who is a former Ranger medic currently studying pre-med and computer science at Columbia, which is pretty incredible, with hopes of going to med school here soon and also working on a few other JSON projects with us. Thanks so much for joining us. What have you got today? This paper is a review and it's titled Far Forward Gaps in Hemorrhagic Shock and Prolonged Field Care, an Update of ALM Fluid Therapy for Field Use. Its authors are Dr. Jeffrey Dobson and Dr. Haley Letson from the Heart Trauma and Sepsis Research Lab at James Cook University in Queensland, Australia. The abstract reads, quote, future expeditionary missions are expected to occur in more remote austere environments where combat medics and casualties may have to wait up to seven days before resupply or evacuation. Currently, there is no effective fluid therapy for hemorrhagic shock at the point of injury and continuum of care over this extended period. We have been developing a small volume IV IO ALM therapy for non-compressible hemorrhagic shock and shown in preclinical models that it extends survival to three days, reduces abdominal bleeding by 60%, blunts inflammation, corrects coagulopathy, preserves platelet function, and prevents immunodeficiency. The ALM survival phenotype is associated with an upregulation of the master genes of the mitochondrial metabolism in the heart and brain and a downregulation in the periphery. End quote. Now, the goal of this paper is to discuss the potential military benefits of ALM use, and they do so by explaining the history of ALM use, as well as discussing the findings of their previous rodent and porcine studies. They also introduce a conceptual schema that ALM addresses, which they call the systems hypothesis of trauma or SHOT. They say that SHOT may explain why some severely bleeding trauma patients still die despite getting the very best care. They hypothesize that, quote, if the central nervous system control of cardiovascular coupling is maintained following a trauma, the endothelium will be protected, mitochondrial energetics will be maintained, 
and coagulopathy and inflammation will be minimized, end quote. 20 years ago, Dr. Dobson asked if it was possible to pharmacologically manipulate the human heart to operate more like the heart of a natural hibernator for improved protection during cardiopulmonary bypass or valvular surgery and goes into why he developed ALM specifically. Adenosine was to inhibit the SA node and reduce the atrial and ventricular action potential duration. Lidocaine for reducing the action potential amplitude by arresting the sodium fast channels and magnesium to stabilize the membrane and protect against repercussion arrhythmias. They showed that ALM was far superior to high potassium with fewer days of hospitalization. That caused them to begin to explore whether or not low-dose ALM resuscitates the heart after a major trauma. The list of ALM-induced survival phenotypes after severe trauma that they were able to show through their rodent and porcine studies is quite impressive, and it includes correction of trauma-induced coagulopathy, reduced systemic inflammation, preserved platelet aggregation, increased blood flow to the brain and gut, improved tissue oxygenation, improved thermoregulatory control, protection against immunodeficiency and infection, and hypotensive resuscitation with neuroprotection, just to name a few of the 16 survival phenotypes. What the authors have been able to demonstrate through the various studies conducted over the years is truly amazing. However, the paper also discusses a study done by the Naval Medical Research Unit San Antonio, or NAMRU, that compares ALM against TCCC, and it shows ALM is inferior to hexane-based resuscitation, and that it wasn't a suitable low-volume replacement to current TCCC resuscitation. The NAMRU study does admit that ALM may be therapeutic adjunct candidate, and that further studies are warranted. I give this paper's format a thumbs down because it doesn't follow the typical format of a review paper, and I just found myself a bit disoriented by the lack of the regular sections you would expect. The biggest pro of this paper is that Dr. Dobson literally invented ALM and has been studying it for over 20 years, so he's a subject matter expert. The paper describes his findings in a way that brings the reader along with him in his evolution of understanding and his ideations of different applications of the therapy. In my opinion, the major con of this paper is that the authors may not be objective reviewers of the topic due to their personal stake in ALM. The review does bring up the NAMRU study, but it takes a rather defensive approach in pointing out their dosing was incorrect and was complicated by the use of buprenorphine. They do have a table that summarizes the five porcine studies and ALM is inferior to other therapies in certain cases, but the paper itself is overwhelmingly lacks ALM shortcomings, whether they're significant or not. I recommend that the authors conduct studies to test ALM's use alongside the current analgesics used in prolonged field care to assess its feasibility in practice. Overall, ALM seems to be promising and this paper explains why we should continue studying its military application. It is definitely worth the read. All right, Alex, what do you got this quarter? All right, next up is a pretty exciting article. It's Ketamine Administration by Special Operations Medical Personnel During Training Mishaps. It comes from a great group of authors, including a number of friends to the pod. Newly minted, Dr. Andy Fisher. Congratulations, Andy. Hope you're enjoying your time out there in New Mexico. A bunch of great medics, uh, Dr. Ted Redman and Dr. Stephen Rush. And so the background or introduction... And as I like to frame this, the two important things in that are 
both the gap in the literature and the clinical question that they're asking. And essentially what they say is that special operations medics routinely carry ketamine, including in CONUS training missions, which they have likely been able to successfully use to treat patients. However, they don't see that same capability within conventional forces. And so that's their gap in the literature. And then their clinical question is, could this be a relevant capability to add to conventional forces to carry ketamine for training opportunities to treat actual real-world injuries. So their methods, this is a retrospective observational quality improvement project performed within three different enterprises using after-action reviews. Their results were a seven-year span with 34 male patients. 22 of them received IV ketamine, 12 received intramuscular ketamine, eight received intranasal ketamine, which is a total of 42 patients. So we already know that some of the patients received multiple doses. And what they found is that for all comers, their pre-ketamine pain scale was eight out of 10, and their post-ketamine pain scale was zero out of 10. Uh, their conclusion is that ketamine appears to be safe and effective for use during military training accidents and that military units should consider allowing their medics to carry and use as needed. So uh, we've actually had a number of clarifying questions for this and we were able to reach out to one of the medic authors and get some further questions from him. But first, let's go through our quality assessment checklist. Yes, let's. Are you ready? Send it. Was it a clearly focused question? Yes. Did the author use the appropriate approach for the question? Yes. Was the cohort recruited in an appropriate way? Not applicable as a retrospective study. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? I had some questions for this for the author. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? See above. Had the authors identified all important confounding factors? No, this is a retrospective uh, after-action review analysis, so we all know that there are multiple confounders that could be thrown into the mix there. Was the following of subjects complete enough? Again, not applicable as a retrospective analysis. How precise are the results in the estimate of risk? The results are the pain scale, and I had some questions for the author about that. Do you believe the results? Yes. Can the results be applied to your patient population? Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, I spoke with the author offline ahead of time that we are already seeing a dramatic absorption of ketamine in the civilian pre-hospital environment and hopefully within the conventional forces. However, there is a big kerfuffle going on right now. And I would encourage folks to read the joint policy statement that just came out from the American Association of Anesthesiologists and the American College of Emergency Physicians against the use of pre-hospital ketamine in the civilian environment. Do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes. Well, that's it. I just wanted to say from a methods and statistical analysis approach, I thought this article is was actually fairly good and that they identified how they were going to do things. They did what they said they were going to do. And I think they used the appropriate statistical texts to manage that. So I, I just from a side point, from a little nerd point, Alex, I just wanted to say that I really appreciated that about this article. Yeah, I agree. 
And to answer some of our more specific questions about this manuscript, we've got the pleasure of one of the authors. Welcome to Stephen Meyer, former Ranger medic and recent IPAP indoctrinee. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Hey, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for this great manuscript. We really enjoyed reading it, and it uh, brought to mind a couple of different questions that we had for you and your author colleagues. So maybe you could help us dive into this great publication a little bit more. And our first question was, the data set comes from a retrospective observational PI project of after-action reviews. How successful do you think your data collection was in terms of capturing all uses of ketamine in training injuries within the enterprise? Is there a risk of selection bias, and does this limit your conclusions? No, it's a great question. I mean, there's always a risk of not capturing all patient encounters uh, in these type of training scenarios, and that could be due to human error, poor documentation, or any other reason. There's a good possibility we did miss several of the encounters. I mean, we're trying to collect data across three different soft units who are geographically spread out across the U.S. and training in various regions. I mean, in the DOD, we have trouble capturing pre-hospital data from combat casualties, and it's, it's certainly a challenging area to perform studies. As far as the uh, selection bias, since all, all the data was pulled through various internal databases, the various units, there's definitely some potential for that. Um, I don't think this limits the conclusions entirely, though, but instead it encompasses the, uh, the majority of the incidences and outcomes that we see as a whole in the soft community. In the paper, with the retrospective observational case series, I mean, there were no controls, and that, that is subject to confounding selection and recall bias. And additionally, the, the medications administered along with ketamine that can't be determined in this study, but with previous studies that we did uh, reference for this data, I mean, we can still extrapolate that ketamine is safe and effective to use. Yeah, fair enough. And I think we've all got plenty of experience that corroborates your same conclusions. We noticed that the initial mean intravenous dose of ketamine was 48.4 milligrams, which is almost two and a half times the TC3 recommended dose of 20 milligrams. Uh, also, the initial average intramuscular dose was 37 milligrams, which is less than the TC3 recommended dose of 50 milligrams. Did the data show why this dosing discrepancy may have occurred in your data set? You know, I, I think the the TCCC recommend a dose of 20 milligrams IV as a, as a safe starting dose for all medical personnel. That being said, I mean, within the soft community, I think it's a safe bet to say that we train in a more in-depth standard and higher understanding of pharmacodynamics and kinetics than the average user. So this allows... I mean, just knowledge and experience to to self-determine the appropriate dose based off the medical or tactical situation. And then the, um, the variabilities of patient conditions, medical treatment decisions, and just overall provider preference uh, would have accounted for these discrepancies. In, uh, in the article in Table 5, I mean, we did show... 47.1% of the casualties in this study were given IV ketamine, 
with a minimum dose of 15 milligrams and a max dose of 100. In regards to the IM dosing, there's only 10 casualties that receive this route of administration with a minimum dose of 20 and a dose of 75 as the max. Uh, the lower IV IM ketamine is primarily due to different protocols within the soft units in this study. I could speak as a former 75th Ranger Regiment medic. Our SOPs would definitely be a little higher, but I cannot speak on other units' protocols. Again, this is just a case-by-case -case incidence on what the individual medic or provider would give in that scenario. Well, that's fair. It's certainly reasonable to assume that the medics in the three enterprises cited have a much higher uh, scope of practice training and probably experience than the, the average Joe that's using the TC3 guidelines. So I, I could certainly appreciate that. Now, moving on, we also see that reported pain scores did not list if the data was self-reported from the patient or provided by the medic via a FACES score. Does this limit conclusions, and how do we interpret the average post-administration score of zero? Does this mean that all patients were nonverbal at time of pain evaluation? Um, it, as with most units, we use the uh, numeric rating scale. This scale can range from zero to ten or zero to hundred. The simple scoring system has been shown to be effective in evaluating pain scores, but zero on the scale simply means they do not have pain. And digging into that a little bit further, do you happen to know if the majority of these particular patient encounters, the pain score was self-reported by the patient or was that reported by the medic? Um, do not know the answer off the top of my head. I mean, without looking back at each individual reporting case, I, I'm not sure yeah, that's fair. And certainly there's been a, a lot of studies looking at pain scores, especially in the ER, I think is where I've got the largest data set. And it's been shown to be hugely variable, whether it's reported by the patient or whether it's interpreted through the nurses via a FACES score or anything like that. So certainly reasonable that there's some variability in, in reporting. Moving on, in the discussion, you mentioned low-dose ketamine as well as procedural sedation usage. Uh, in our clinical experience, these terms mean different things to different peoples. Uh, when you discuss low-dose ketamine, what dosage and, and route are you referring to? So low-dose ketamine, we define that as 0.1 to 0.54 milligrams per kilogram IV, and that's largely dependent on how fast it's pushed. Um, additionally, that's going to be different depending on what institution or protocol you have, but generally that's the accepted dose that, that we go by. In regards to procedural sedation, uh, we generally use one to two milligrams per kilogram IV or four to six milligrams per kilogram IM. And this is a dose that's discussed in various studies. Hmm. That's some, some great insight from somebody who's got some real-world combat experience. Uh, and just out of curiosity, after reading a, a bunch of Sergei Matov's uh, manuscripts about low-dose ketamine, I've changed my practice a few years ago to doing the 0.1 to 0.2 mgs per kg 
but he likes to do it in a 100cc bag of normal saline and drip it in over 10 minutes. He says it gets better effect, and, and I've certainly noticed that. Is that something you guys have experimented with at all? Because it sounds a little logistically challenging on the, the combat environment. Yeah, I definitely can see that the more steps you have to do of combining a drug and an IV bag, worrying about patient movement, and every every other factor in the tactile scenario, I mean, that would that would definitely complicate things at times. I haven't seen those studies, but I mean, just off of previous education, I mean, I, I mean, that's not too far off of where uh, the dosing that that we're looking at. Maybe something to explore in a future study, and maybe like a transportation environment or just a tactical field care. So, lastly, you. Note near conclusion that ketamine appears to be safe and effective analgesic. Are we able to draw definitive conclusions based on your retrospective data set of 34 patients? Although the study was only 34 patients, uh, the conclusion that ketamine appears to be safe and effective analgesia is absolutely accurate. Uh, this data was collected from patient treatment using highly trained and knowledgeable medics following their unit-based protocols, which were derived from peer-reviewed research. As with most studies, there always can be further evaluation with a larger population base and a random controlled trial. Within the confines of what we were trying to relate to the military community, I think we did a great job reinforcing the knowledge we already have. Ketamine is a, is a safe medication, and if used correctly in the right circumstances and right patient-dependent dose, you you will get the desired outcome. Basically, it's trying to get the message out, like, tra train as you fight. I mean, medics are deploying to combat with ketamine, but there's no use within a garrison training environment uh, with little exposure to that drug. So we need to look at our internal protocols within our military units and expand upon that to get these medics using this drug, get them educated, and we'll we'll get the outcomes that we want. Yeah, you make a great point. And I really appreciated in your manuscript that you guys highlighted not only do medics not have exposure in the garrison environment, but oftentimes their medical provider supervisors, such as a flight surgeon or a junior PA, might not have exposure with ketamine, and that might make them uncomfortable to allow the medics to provide it. And I just thought you guys had such a, a great global perspective on that. Yeah, I, I think you summed that up very well. I mean, we, we just need to educate, train, and I mean get, get these tools among others into everyone's hands and use them under the right circumstances and benefit our patients. Absolutely. So well said. Well, Stephen Meyer, thank you so much for your time and insight. Really delighted to have somebody with your wealth of special operations combat experience coming over to the dark side of medical officer world and, and looking forward to having you uh, supporting these medics in the near future. Yeah, thank you for your time. Well, Alex, I think that covers the fall 2020 edition of the JSON. We want to remind you that when you get this journal, go ahead and read through the rest of the articles. There's a lot of good stuff in there. There are a couple things that we would like to highlight. So the first is our monthly author interview series that we've been having because it is the 20th anniversary of the JSON. 
So this quarter, we're going to be focusing on prolonged field care. And you know what time it is. It's virtual SOMSA time. So while you're getting this SOMSA virtual online sign-up should be open, and we look forward to seeing you. That uh, education should be easily accessible for you. We've hand-selected the highlights from the original selections, and we've even got a Q&A section for each of those presentations. Uh, really looking forward to some great education for you from the soft audience. And I think that's all we've got. Wait, wait, Alex, 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 we're not done. Alex. That's right. Listeners, we need your feedback. We need your help. We need your assistance editing articles. We need you to tell us what we're doing wrong and give us some good direction on what you want from us. We need you. This is Sophia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions. This is Colonel Shackelford from the Joint Trauma System reminding you to submit your DD-1380 and TC-3 AAR to JTS after the mission.